again for you being here today. I want you to take your Bibles and go to Matthew's Gospel, chapter number 19. And thanks for staying at church today after you saw the bulletin uh, and what I'm preaching on today. So I really appreciate that. <clears throat> uh, you know, I've said this often, but oatmeal is not why a fat boy gets out of bed, but it'll work, okay? And sometimes, uh, you know, sometimes you just come to passages and they're challenging. And yet, um, these, it's interesting, these are the final things that Jesus talked about before he enters Jerusalem for the final time. Very, very serious things, very complex things, challenging things. And I'm glad that the Bible has the message and the answer for all of those challenges in life. So we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 19. We're going to start our, our reading in verse number 1, where Jesus literally, in the, in the very last moments... Uh, before he goes into the triumphal entry, which we'll be at in the month of September. Uh, so, and that's the last week of Jesus' life. Jesus has a few of these conversations and teachings. And uh, we're, we're going we're to do our best to look at these complicated uh, questions that Jesus Christ presents and answers. And uh, we, need to, we need to come to the Bible. Listen, when we come to the Bible, every Christian, every Christian has a background in church. They all come sometimes with things they, they already think or they already believe. And frankly, sometimes there are things they believe that are true that when you really look at the Bible, they're just not true. And so what you have to do, if you're going to be a, a Bible-believing Christian, you're going to have to look at the text and you're going to have to take the text for what it's worth and we're going to have to believe Jesus, uh, even sometimes if it goes against some of the things that we hold uh, even sometimes dear, some convictions sometimes that, that, that we put. And I know the hard thing about convictions sometimes is Christians sometimes form convictions about certain things, mainly because a pastor taught something that sometimes wasn't even tethered to the Bible. And that becomes a challenge. And so uh, we're going to look at some of those things, and we're going to look at it wide open today. So with that in mind, let's read Matthew 19, verse, beginning at verse number 1. Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these sayings, that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him, saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, now watch this, for just any reason? For just any reason they want to do that. I don't like them, I don't feel the same way, or anything, any just reason. He answered and said to them, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Watch this. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. They said to him, question number two. It's question two. Okay, question one. Can a guy divorce his wife for any reason he chooses? Jesus answers the question. Now we got a follow-up question. The Pharisees are not going to ask question number two. This is super important. Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce. And that's in Deuteronomy chapter 21 verses 1 through 4 where the Old Testament regulates the process of divorce. 
Okay, get it. God, can a guy just divorce his wife for any reason? Jesus says, what did the Bible say from the beginning? Okay, answers the question. Then they come back and they say, well, okay, then why is there even this stipulation in the Bible? Why is divorce even talked about then? Okay, why, did, why is there something in the Bible that speaks about divorce? Okay, that's a good question. So now Jesus is going to answer that question. Verse 8, he said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, watch this word, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. Now, before you get nervous, okay, before you get nervous, please listen. Please let me get through this entire thing. Can we at least agree on that? Can I give you a virtual high five? Okay, please, please let me get to the end. I know there's divorced people in the room. I do. And let me just say one thing about that before I go any further. God does not want you to live in the past. There, one thing I can tell you for sure, God does not hold things over people and just for the rest of their life to be wrecked and racked with guilt. That's not what this is about. And I think if you listen to me, get down into those last verses, you're going to see something uh, that I think God gives to us that's very, very specific that I think will really, really help, okay? Now, this is kind of interesting. Look at verse 10. <laughs> I'm not even going to really touch on this, but I think this is great. His disciples said to him, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. <laughs> That's just a great question, and, and, and Jesus answers that later. I don't have time to get into that, but, but I want to speak to you this morning on this complicated subject, the divorce dilemma. The divorce dilemma. Now, let me say one more word before I get into this. I'm not apologizing for what I'm saying. I'm trying to give you some perspective. For those of you that are new, I am in my third year of teaching through the life of Christ. We are literally walking through the stories, the messages, the parables, the miracles of Jesus Christ. And we've been doing this for now into the third year. So I am not picking out a subject that I just want to talk about. Does everybody understand that? I am literally teaching the next thing that happened in Jesus' life. And this is where we are. So, so you got to understand that. So I'm not preaching this to pick on anybody. I don't do that kind of stuff. I preach this because it's what the Bible says and it's where we are. Okay, with that all in mind, let's pray and let's get started. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. Bless this sermon. I pray, help me, Lord, to be clear and help it to make a difference and help our marriages and our futures to be strengthened. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. On May the 20th, 1875, 51 nations came together and established the International Bureau of Weights and Measurements. It is now located in Paris, France. The purpose of this institution was to certify weights and measurements across international borders for business and trade. So if a company wants to know they are being fair about what they offer, you know, for instance, a potato chip company that says, we are going to give 15 ounces of potato chips for X amount of dollars. How many of y'all ever open a bag of chips? You're like, wait a second, I got this big bag, but I got this small amount of chips. That's because the weight of the chips is what it is, not the size of the bag, okay? So, sorry everybody, you can't be mad anymore about the, paper, uh, the potato chip company doing that to you. But so this, you go through this process to certify and verify 
that there is a, watch this, a true standard of measurement across the board. The reason why talking about marriage and family and divorce is so difficult is because we live in a world that is confused and chaotic. And what we need as believers is an international standard and measurement for how life is supposed to be lived. And here's the good news. We have that in the Word of God. Specifically, specifically as it relates to family, sexuality, sexual orientation, gender, identity, the Bible has all the answers for all of those subjects. And I mentioned all of them because they are intricately tied together in what Jesus talks about as it relates to men and women staying in their relationships. So I'm going to build this sermon on two really simple premises. Jesus is asked two questions. Jesus gives two answers. And in these two answers that Jesus gives, he, he highlights for us two very important lessons that everyone needs to learn about marriage and relationships. So number one, Jesus has asked the question, can a man divorce his wife for any reason that he wants to? Can he just get mad at her? Can they just have uh, you know, un unreconcilable differences and without any kind of attempt to reconcile or anything? Can they just drop their marriage and say, that's it, it's over, I'm going to go find somebody else? The short answer to the question is no, that is not supposed to happen. The principle that Jesus is trying to point out to us, however, is number one in your outline. If you're going to get marriage and divorce right, you first need to understand the sacred nature of marriage. The sacred nature of marriage. Almost every time I have performed a wedding at this church or been to a wedding that was performed, oftentimes when the preacher greets the guest and starts talking about what is going on, They'll say something like this, we have gathered together here in the sight of God and these witnesses to join this man and this woman. Jesus, our Savior, instituted and authorized and even supported the institution of marriage by attending the wedding of Cana in John chapter 2. Wet, uh, marriage is not to be entered into ill-advised or lightly. And I think that is a tremendous way to start a wedding ceremony. And I would say to you today that marriage is not supposed to be viewed as lightly. Marriage should never be entered into ill-advised. Marriage is a sacred thing. Marriage is a Bible thing. Marriage is a picture of Jesus and his relationship with the church. So when you are married and how that relationship carries itself out and how that marriage sticks together through challenging circumstances is literally a picture of how Jesus sticks it out with us. So every year of my life that I stay faithful and committed to Angie and my relationship with her, we just finished 20 years of marriage, every year I continue to show in the way that I treat her, the way that we run our home, the way that we stay together, the way that we love one another, I am a picture, get this, I am a picture of Jesus and his love for his people. And so marriage in Ephesians 5 is literally designed to demonstrate to the world the nature of God's love for God's people. And that is a high and holy calling. 
We learn in Jesus' answer, verses 4 through uh, 6, two lessons about marriage. And I want you to see them. Number one, we see that marriage is a God thing. Marriage is a God thing. Notice what it says in verse number 4. He answered and said to them, have you not read? Notice that. Circle that down. Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? The first thing I want to point out to you about the nature of it being a God thing is that marriage, we are taught about marriage, marriage was originated and designed by God himself. And when Jesus says to the Pharisees, have you not read this, he's specifically pointing them back to Genesis chapter 2 and verse number 24. The most important passage of scripture in all the Bible related to marriage is Genesis chapter 2, verse number 24. Here is where God told the original man and the original woman what marriage was supposed to be, how long marriage was supposed to last. And remember, Jesus is talking to Pharisees here. These are people who were supposed to have mastered the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They should have known Genesis like the back of their hand. But sometimes religious people have very convenient ways of not observing or paying attention to or following things that should be as clear as the nose on their face. I mean, right out of the gate of the Bible, God creates man and woman and he instructs them about how marriage is supposed to go. Can I just say this to you by way of application today? Whatever you do with your marriage, whatever you do with your life, you should build your life on the reading and the teaching of the Bible. And that's why we do things like marriage conferences here in about a month. We are trying to emphasize, once again, what does the Bible say about marriage? How are we supposed to live as Christians in the 21st century? Jesus got asked a tough question. You know what he said? He went right to the Bible for his answer. The second thing that I want you to see is that marriage was instituted at creation and it should follow a divine order. A divine order. A man is going to leave his wife, his, his mother... And father, a woman is going to leave her father and mother and they're going to come together and they're going to join to one another in matrimony and they are going to form a brand new family unit that God designed for that marriage between man and woman to last a lifetime. This is the way God set it up at the beginning. But then I want you to see this, and this is really important, specifically in the culture in which we live today, and that is this. Marriage includes two very specific people. Marriage is an exclusive relationship, watch it, between what God created at the beginning of time. I'm not trying to go on a political rant right now, and I'll never do that. But somebody needs to be reminded, both culturally and I think even in the church, that softening its edge on certain topics that need to be reminded, listen very carefully, when God created people, listen, he created them man and woman. God creates people that are biologically born as men and as women. You are either, listen, I'm sorry to disturb, you know, the news channels and try to inform, you know, Time Magazine and ESPN about this, but somebody needs to be reminded that, that a person is born as a biological man or a biological woman. And all of this confusion 
that you see in our society that the literally the athlete of the year that ESPN is putting forth to the world is the transgender swimmer who is now a man swimming as a woman and because our culture is so politically correct nobody can inform this person who's so misinformed that you're actually not a girl. God created you to be a man and Time Magazine just this past week nominated man of the year to be the secretary who is a transgender woman and I mean we're so confused not only has it become accepted it's become actually exalted in our land listen church uh, the Bible does not change God does not change men and women are created by God and it is men and women only that are to be married a biological man who would have ever dreamed I'd live in a world that I have to define this so carefully a biologically born male and a biologically born female are the only two appropriate candidates for a marriage. Biblically. And by the way, it's one biologically born man and one biologically born woman that makes a marriage. That's why Jesus is getting ready to bring up the issue of sexual immorality. Uh, if you're going to do marriage right, it is between you and your wife and you and your wife only. I've said it like this. Uh, uh, relationships with uh, other men, if you're a man, is sin in the Bible. Relationships with more than one woman in the Bible, it is called a sin. If you're a woman and you're in a relationship with another woman, please, there's no other way to dance around it, folks. It's a sin. If you're a woman and you're in multiple intimate physical relationships with more than one man, it is a sin. It's always been a sin and it will still be a sin. And when we start tampering with and messing with God's design, we get in trouble. Never forget this, folks. Marriage is a God thing. And if you don't do it God's way, it's going to be a real problem. Number two, you see in the same text that marriage is also a permanent thing. Marriage is a permanent thing. He says uh, at the end, verse 6, so they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Make no mistake about it. The permanence of marriage was God's original uh, 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 intention. Anything less would be tragic. The major conclusion of this passage and every other major passage in the Bible, like 1 Corinthians 6, Ephesians 5, Matthew 19, and others, is very simply this. That when God brings a man and woman together, it is his original design that they stay together forever. I know there are things that happen, and we're going to look at some of them in just a moment. But don't miss this, folks. You can't change the fact that God's original intention was for your marriage to last forever. Let me go ahead and hasten on to say to anybody in the room that's in their second or third uh, marriage, and I've met people in their seventh marriage, believe it or not. Let me say this to you. Let me say this to you. It doesn't matter what marriage you're in right now. Stay in the one you're in. You can't go back and fix what you did. How many are thankful for the grace of God and the blood of Jesus Christ? Well, I sure am. I'm sure glad today... Uh, uh, in other areas of my life that I'm not still having to be accountable for things that were done prior to my relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm glad to be set free from that. I'm glad to be forgiven of that. Some of y'all ain't even hearing me this morning. I'm glad to be forgiven of it. I'm glad it doesn't define me anymore. I'm glad my future, come on, my future doesn't have to be carved out by my past. 
Hey, I know that sometimes my past uh, may explain me, but it certainly doesn't excuse me. Come on. I know that my past is soiled and problematic, and there's a lot of things, and so is yours, actually. And aren't you glad, though, that Jesus doesn't hang those things over your head and try to always make you for the rest of your life feel like you're guilty and dirty and worthless? I'm glad to tell you today, we don't have a God like that. Somebody help me up here. We don't have a God like that. we got a God who loves, a God who forgives, a God of second chances. Come on. A God of new beginnings. But do not let that be something in your life that excuses certain realities, one of which is God wants your marriage to stay together. He emphasizes here, marriage becomes one. Therefore, listen, it is actually a spiritual and physical union that is a representation of Christ and the church. Is anybody else out there glad to know that when you still mess up, and you probably did this morning more times than you realize it, Charles Spurgeon said there's enough sin in the finest prayers of God's people to send the entire world to hell. You've sinned so much today, you don't even realize how much you sinned. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that when God, when you sin against God, he doesn't divorce you? That's the point. Marriage created by God as a one flesh union is meant to be a sign of God's unbreakable covenant with us. It's an important symbol throughout the scriptures. God is compared to a husband and God's people to a wife. When by the grace of God we're able to keep our marriages together, we get to be symbols, although imperfect symbols, of God's faithfulness to his people. I was thinking about this, Randy, with you this week. We rode out and did a visit together, and Donna's got some serious health challenges right now. And I I talked to Randy. We were going on a visit, and Randy, uh, I said, uh, hey, do you mind if I ride with you? And he said, said, sure, Pastor. He said, but I want you to know uh, Donna's going to be with me because I take Donna everywhere with me. I got to tell you, brother, the words for better, for worse, for sickness and in health, rung in my ears and I thought to myself, thank God, that is what it's all about. It is all about standing in the fire, come on. It is about continuing through adversity, it is about forgiveness, it is about reconciliation. There's not a perfect person in this room, there's not a husband that doesn't do stupid stuff, there's not a wife who doesn't do equally the same. It's just not happening, so what do we have to do? We have to be God's people, that's what we have to be. We have to be reconciled, we have to be forgiving people, we have to be loving people, we have to be gracious people. Anybody can walk out on a relationship over any little thing that doesn't go their way. But the grace of God shows us that marriage is sacred in nature. Number two, Jesus now that he's made this statement, strong statement, goes right to the Bible, goes right to original intent, does not mince words at all. And by the way, you don't think Jesus knew before they even asked? That he wrote down some words about divorce in Deuteronomy? Do you think the Pharisees caught him off guard? Do you think they said, why does this say this in Moses? You don't think Jesus could have threw that right at him? Hey, while you're talking about it, let me go ahead and explain what happened here. But Jesus lets them be arrogant. And Jesus lets them continue to throw their questions at him. So the second question is this. Okay, if, if you're not supposed to get divorced, then why does Deuteronomy chapter 21 verses 1 through 4 tell the Jewish people, how to go about getting a divorce. The key word, <clears throat> the key word in this verse, let me, let me read it to you, is in verse number 8. 
Moses, because of the hardness of your heart. Circle the next word. Permitted. Permitted. Divorce is never commanded. It is permitted. And it is permitted under certain circumstances, highly advised against. Which leads me to the second point, and that is this. In marriage, you need to secondly recognize the real dangers of divorce. And I'm telling you, you read verses 8 through 9, and you want to know one word that comes to the surface when I read this? Complicated. This thing gets complicated. It gets complicated, first of all, because of the hardness of man's heart. As I've already said before, uh, if you are here and you are divorced, listen very carefully. Sometimes churches can have legalistic views about divorce. And, and sometimes churches can have rather casual views about divorce. I just want you to know, it's not as easy as you might think it is. Sometimes I'll be in conversations with people and I realize sometimes the heartache and the challenges that some people are going through, it's just not as simple as some people want to make it. I've been to churches that won't even let divorced people teach Sunday school classes and stuff. And I'm like, come on, man, where have we gotten into this idea that if a person is divorced, somehow they're a second-rate citizen or they're a second-class Christian or they're a B-team believer? My friend, have you ever read the book of Jonah in your entire life? Jonah was a preacher, ran from God, and God didn't re-enlist him on the B-team, come on, or the backup team or the NBA G League, are you kidding me? He put him right back in the starting lineup and said, let's go again. God doesn't have a B team, friend. You're on the A team. And you need to understand that. But you need to also understand that divorce is not some casual, flippant thing that you do, like, you know, choosing between Red Lobster and Olive Garden. You know, I like, you know, pasta better than fish. I like Jill better than Joan. My friend, you better be careful. You know, I'm in my 40s. I'm not talking about me, just an illustration. I'm in my 40s, and I'm just, you know, my marriage is, no, just the spark. You know, the spark is gone. Well, that's your problem. Your problem is you're living for a spark. Good night, friend. What, maybe 2% of marriage is about a spark? The other half is raising five heathen. I mean, kids. <laughs> I'm just saying, the point that Jesus is getting ready to make is this. It's not casual. Whatever, whatever you might think about it, there's nothing casual about this. It's serious. And before you go walking down those paths, you better, you better take this into strong consideration, okay? So let me start walking through this, okay? I want you to understand, when Jesus says here that a marriage, or excuse me, a divorce is <clears throat> permitted, I do want you to know, just plain out scripturally, there are at least two reasons why a person could be allowed to be divorced. Number one, in our text, it says it right here in verse uh, number nine, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, notice this, except for sexual immorality. Now, let me just stop and say this. Um, this is, says except, sometimes you'll hear this spoken of as the exception clause. And I look, I know some of you are Bible trained. I've got seminary graduates in here in the room. I, look, I get it. And we might can sword cross after this. But folks, listen, it's in the Bible. You want to know why it's in the Bible? I'll tell you why. One of the most devastating things that will ever happen in any relationship is sexual immorality. 
You want to wreck your marriage? Then go do that. The, the, the shame, Proverbs 6 says, Whoso committeth adultery with a woman lacketh understanding. He that doeth it destroyeth his own soul. A wound and dishonor shall he get and it shall not be repro uh, his reproach shall not be wiped away. You talk about something very challenging to overcome, there it is right there. The violation of trust, the violation of unity, the violation of harmony. I'm just here to tell you, adultery is dangerous. It's the turning away of a promise. You said, you said when you got married, I will keep myself only for you. You said that. Number two, it turns life from security to chaos. When you commit adultery or you get hooked on pornography, as Jesus says in Matthew 5, you shouldn't do, uh, it turns things into chaos. It becomes secretive and dishonest. It destroys both family and the one committing adultery. It wrecks society. It stirs up hatred. It creates enemy. It encourages a culture that reckons marriage boundaries that shouldn't be so rigid. I mean, there's actually people that live in open relationships to just avoid this kind of thing. It makes marriage so loose and marriage so easy to walk away from. Just don't do it. Otherwise... You're creating a serious problem. You say, well, nobody's getting hurt. Nobody knows. There's not a problem. One woman came to uh, Tony Campalo, a pastor, and he, he, she was a widower, and she was lonely, and she, she uh, found a man in the church who was also a widower, and, uh, a widow, uh, widower, excuse me, and she was, began sleeping with this man. She had no guilt, no remorse, and the pastor found out about it, and he confronted them and began to talk to them, and she said these words, I quote, he makes me feel so wonderful about myself. I helped to meet some of his needs as well. She said, nobody, quote, nobody's getting hurt, nobody suffers. And then the pastor looked across the desk and said this, what about Jesus? What about the one who told you that that's not good? What about the one that you should love enough to love your wife as much to not be involved in this? Marital fidelity is a priority and must be a priority for every couple. But I want you to see this. Why did divorce even happen? Divorce happened. He says it right here. Here's the phrase. Watch it. Because of the hardness of your hearts. Why do people get divorced in the first place? It's very simple. Very simple. People get divorced because sin happens and reconciliation doesn't. So let's say... There's three common reasons why people get divorced. Number one is sexual infidelity, obviously. Number two is financial problems. Number three is what they call irreconcilable differences. Or I would say it like this, you don't know how to communicate. So you get frustrated, you don't know how to talk. So you, uh, somebody will say something, and then the wife gets mad or the husband gets mad. And instead of dealing with it, instead of saying, I, that, that offended me or that bothered me, let's pray about this, let's talk about this, they let that build up and continue to build up. And over time, their heart becomes hardened to their spouse. And then the love leaves. Then the relationship is gone. And then a couple years into this, a few years into this, somebody else gets involved. Another person enters into the scene. And all of a sudden, the feelings return for that new person. The feelings are gone for this other person. And the whole thing falls apart. Interestingly enough, I think this is very, very intriguing as it relates to this text. Jesus here shows us that really the issue with divorce that is a problem is when you leave your spouse for somebody else. I mean, look at what it says. I mean, don't, don't just take my word for it. Listen to this. Verse 9. And I say unto you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual 
immorality and marries another. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. And the idea behind this is there was another party involved. There was another party involved. And oftentimes, those cases of immorality or adultery lead to a newly formed relationship. Now, here's the problem. The problem is you are permitted to get a divorce in this situation. If a spouse goes out and starts cheating on a spouse and starts developing another relationship, it's okay. It's okay. The problem is God says really the better part is if there's some way that we can get reconciled together. It's permitted. It's not required. But this is a strong warning. This is a strong warning about how dangerous divorce is. And then there's the danger of complicated relationships. And that's what, I mean, read this. Read, read, read what he says here. He says, if a man marries another, he commits adultery. Or whoever marries someone who is divorced commits adultery. And if all you did, guys, if all you did was read that, that would be very problematic, wouldn't it? But I want to make this statement. And th you remember at the beginning of the sermon I said, will you hang on and let me get somewhere? I'm here. In case you forgot, I'm here now. So here's what I want to say. I've met so many preachers that have hard lines on divorce and remarriage. I mean, literally. They could, for whatever reason, they would literally forbid somebody to get remarried. Here's the principle in the Bible you need to understand. If you are in an illegitimate divorce, meaning you got divorced for reasons other than the Bible says, and I'll get to the second one in a minute, then you shouldn't get remarried. But if you got divorced for a legitimate reason like this, a legitimate divorce allows for a legitimate remarriage. That's what the text says. Except, remember, except rules out everything that's coming after this. So if you, if you, if you put the exception in there, then everything else is, is square. I'm not saying it's easy, it's complicated, that's what I said. I said, you're going to read verse number 8 and 9, and you're going you're to be feeling, there's all kinds of feelings that are attached to this. There's all kinds of people in Malt that, that have been married more than one time, and they, they have these feelings attached to this. I'm simply saying to you, it makes life complicated, doesn't it? Now, let me give you the second reason that God would permit a divorce in the Bible, and it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And it tells us that if there is a man, or maybe it's actually Romans chapter 7. It tells us that if there is a man who is unsaved, Married to a woman who is saved, or vice versa. An unsaved woman married to a saved man. And that unsaved spouse decides she doesn't want to be in a relationship with a Christian. And she decides to walk away from it. At that moment, the Christian is freed from that relationship to marry again. So again, there's two, two times that it is okay or permitted to be divorced. Any other reason is not a really good reason. Okay? Now... As we finish up here, Jesus makes this, relationships get complicated, and then you start weighing in the rest of scripture and what it says. For instance, Malachi chapter 2 says, God hates divorce. Now that's tough. Malachi 2.16. So I want to ask this question as I close. Why does God, why is this such a thick, seemingly difficult topic? Why would God say something like that? God, of course, doesn't hate the people that get divorced. He hates divorce. Why? I, mean, I, I wrote down four things. I want, you, I want to leave you with these. Number one, because it violates God's perfect plan. In other words, if, if, if you stay in the relationship 
you weather the storms, you stay, you stay pure one with another, that is God's perfect design. And so anything else disrupts that. Number two, divorce involves the breaking of a covenant, and promises are very important to God. Read Matthew chapter number five. Our word matters. It's about integrity. Number three, because God loves people. You want to know why God hates divorce? Because divorce devastates people. Uh, one doctor, Dr. Thomas Holmes, University of Washington, conducted a study to find which situations caused the most stress and disruption in people's lives. In the, uh, the, the number one thing that causes people stress in life is when their spouse dies. Number two, divorce. Divorce was more stressful to people than having a parent die, than having a child die, than getting fired from work or finding out they've got cancer. Stressful. And the fourth thing, and I want you to listen, please hear me out. The fourth reason why God said that, I think, in Malachi 2 is because God loves kids. Kids often get destroyed through divorce. I've seen my children interact with relatives and friends, and they ask me these questions sometimes. Why did that happen? Why do they have to do that? Brent one time said to me, he said, that seems like that would be frustrating, Dad. Yeah. You think? You ever thought about that? You ever thought about it might be worth swallowing a little bit of pride? It might be worth being filled with grace and mercy? It might be worth treating others like Jesus treated you? Friend, if you're married here, I want to encourage you. Work it out, man. Let's work it out. You got Jesus. You got the Bible. You got a loving church that's around you. Let's work it out. If you're divorced and you're remarried, get your head up and let's keep moving, man. Don't let some church or religion beat you down over this. Let's move forward by the grace of God. Let's stop making excuses as to why things can't work and why this. And, and husbands and wives, listen, if you are doing something that's not sexual immorality, let's say, you're doing something that's just creating havoc and damage in your relationship, would you please stop? It's not worth what happens when this destroys a family. By God's grace, let's be, let's be families of the book. By his grace, let's pray. The reason why marriage is so important is because Christ married us in the church. It is a picture. And, and Christ has promised never to leave us or forsake us. And, and Christ has promised us that we will eternally be with him. Eternally. And that's what our marriage is supposed to look like. My question, first of all, to you is this. Are you here today? And maybe you do not know Christ as your personal Savior. Maybe you do not know if you died that you would go to heaven. Well, that's really important. That relationship with Jesus Christ is the most important thing in the entire universe. So maybe you're here today and say, Preacher, I don't really know God. I don't really have a relationship with God, but I, I, I would like to. I'd like to know what that means. What does that look like? And if that's you, I'd love to pray for you. I'd love to pray for you. I know this is kind of a challenging message and it, there's a lot of things with it, but I, but I want to know, you to know that we want to help you 
your relationship with Christ. Is there somebody here today that say, Preacher, that's me. I do not know Christ as my Lord and Savior, but I want to know. I want to know what that means. Could I pray for you if that's you? Would you lift your hand up and say, that's me, Preacher. I don't know that, but I want to know that. I'm not sure about that, but I want to know what that means. How many of you say, by the grace of God, I want my marriage, my family to reflect Jesus and his love for the church. And man, preacher, I want, I want God to use us. I want, I, want, I want this to be our testimony. And we want to we wanna be a Christ-honoring home. And God spoke to me about that today. Would you just lift your hand with me and say, God spoke to me about that. Praise his name. That's what I want. Let's stand, if you would. We're going we're gonna to sing together a final song of worship. The wonderful cross. We're going to come and pray. If you want to come and maybe just pray. You can come pray with your spouse if you want. That's great. Don't be, look, this is no, you coming and pray with your spouse doesn't mean the whole church could go, oh boy, they must be having problems. Are you kidding me? Maybe coming and praying will stop those problems. Or, or, or preclude them. Or maybe you just need to remind your spouse how much you love them and how much you're in it and how much you want God to be in it how much of a good thing, a God thing, a permanent thing this is. That's great. Let's just commit ourselves today to having relationships that honor Jesus Christ. If you're not coming to pray, I want to encourage you to sing and worship as we conclude our service of worship today.